0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program was brought to you by Union Beer. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com. I'm
2: Julia. I'm Laura Stanley, host of Inside School Food. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org
0: for thousands more.
3: Radio and Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni from Jimmy's number 43 and the Good Beer Seal. This is a special show on May 29, 2015. We've got a very special cider luminary with us here at Jimmy's number 43 today. Beer Sessions Radio is brought to you by Union Beer Distributors, supplier of world-class ales and ciders, and with me is Gay Howard from the blog. United States of Cider. All right. So my very special guest is Cider Notable, Benjamin Ben Watson, Cider Historian, Writer, Cider Evangelist, Advocate, and Educator. He's here to taste and talk about American Cider in the re-emergence of American cider culture. So, Ben, thanks so much for joining me on the show.
4: Hey, thanks a lot, Jimmy. It's great to be here.
3: It was so cool. Actually, last night you came into Jimmy's number 43, and you had dinner with some friends. And what brought you into town? I mean, I know Wassail opened up in the Lower East Side, the New York City's first, like, cider-focused bar.
4: Yep. Yeah, that was one reason that I came to town, because I had, I wanted to check out Wasail. It's great that you can have a cider bar now in New York, but it's uh, I also was here on my other... My other identity is as an editor a book editor and i was coming to a book event in new york too
3: that's great so i know that uh part of our tasting today we have we have several ciders that you picked up Kay. and gay okay, what's the first uh, cider that we'll be tasting
2: the first cider is redfield from west county in coleraine and that is the maloney's judith and field maloney cider
3: what I love about this, this series, we're doing some special extra shows and, and with cider. We're calling it breakfast cider because it's actually about 9.30 in the morning on a Friday, and, and we're in the front room of Jimmy's number 43. So I do think it is appropriate to start the day with a cider. You know, I think it has about as much sugar as a cappuccino, so it kind of puts you in that league. And, and I think cider drinking is, is a little different than what most people think.
4: And uh, that's part of what we'll talk about today. So so for you, what is it like drinking cider at breakfast? It's great. And this cider in particular that we're starting with, the Redfield, you could drink for breakfast, really. It's a light cider. It's low alcohol. Uh, What do we got for an ABV on this? It's probably 5% or somewhere around there. Uh, 4.9, I think. But anyway, it's a light cider. And the first thing you notice about it is the incredible color, which is it looks like a rosé wine. Because the the apples that it's made from primarily are um, red. There is the red field apple, which has a. It almost looks like if you've seen those beets that have the zonal things, the red underneath the skin. Um, the shoga beets. It looks like that if you cut so it. If open. I cut the apple, it's red inside. You would see a ring of red in the inside, and the and the and the uh, skin is very dark red too. It's a beautiful apple. It's probably my favorite apple in terms of being ornamental. All parts of it are ornamental. The, the leaves are bronze. It has reddish-pink flowers, and because it has part crab in, in its ancestry. It was developed in Geneva, New York, at the Agricultural Experiment Station, and they um, completely ignored it after they developed it, because they said, oh, this tastes <laughs> awful. And it does taste awful out of hand, but it, it makes great pies. It's good to cook with, and it makes terrific cider. And the guy who discovered it was Terry Maloney at uh, West County Cider, the late Terry Maloney who was incredibly important to U.S. cider in terms of bringing back the tradition back in the 1980s. But he just found this, and he said, hey, this would make great cider. Nobody knew about it except for the, a few people at Geneva, New York, and, um, you know, this is a classic, t- very atypical. I mean, now some people are using the apple, but he's the guy who originated it.
3: So I, I met uh, Terry's son, Thiel Malone; Maloney, who's yep. still carrying on the tradition. But, but how does that process work? You know, so there's how many thousands of apple varieties? And, you know, are, 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 are there guys out there like the Maloney's, they're pioneers? They're, are they going to these test stations and, yeah. and, and picking apples and trying them out?
4: Yeah, people are using, um, you know, wild or feral apples a lot, too, and sort of fruit exploring. Some people are into that. Some people are just into rediscovering. We still have a lot to learn about which American varieties are really good cider varieties. There's still a whole relearning process going on about, you know, which ones are the great ones.
3: Well, let's start in the beginning. So, you know, we know you're you're an author. We have your book here, Cider Hard and Sweet by Ben Watson. That's your name. It's pretty cool. And we're looking at that and we have a few other books. And uh, there's this big thing in in Massachusetts called Cider Days. Mm -hmm. I know that my buddy Chris LaHalt, who's written a lot about cider, and others like like okay, you guys have told me about it and haven't been. You know, tell me how that started and and why is it in Massachusetts
4: too? Well, again, it was the uh, it was Terry and Judith Maloney who partnered had this idea. They moved from California. They had a background. They had worked at wineries out in California, and he was also an emergency room physician. So he they moved all the way across the country to uh, western Massachusetts and uh, they found out you know there weren't any grapes growing there that were worth making wine out of but they were surrounded by apple orchards in this one county, uh, Franklin County, where we have the, the festival and it's like a moving feast. We have workshops at different orchards and at different venues throughout the county during the whole weekend so it's always the first week at first saturday and sunday in november so this year it's late it's like the seventh and eighth of november but they started it with the local chamber of commerce and uh it's now going to be this is going to be the 21st year i've been involved for about maybe half of it maybe a little bit more as an and organizer,
2: an amazing group of people show up. You have people that are fascinated by apples. You have cider enthusiasts, but you also have an incredible group of cider makers. Uh, just looking around in the workshops, you saw so many important
4: people. A lot of commercial, a lot of commercial cider. cider makers come now. When it started, it was very much a uh, you know home cider making group, and we still have that aspect to it. A lot of people who make cider at home come and learn about things, but we also have a big. Uh, event that i started a few years ago called the salon the cider salon where we have cider makers from uh all over the u.s and and some international ones every year represented we probably have about 65 or 70 or more brands of cider that you can sample there including ones that you know you wouldn't necessarily know about from new zealand or you know quebec or places like that and uh and we get people sometimes, we usually we get a few people from overseas who attend the event, too. We've had a couple last year from Sweden who visited a few years ago and came back. And we've had people from Australia, we've had Australian cider makers come. And uh, it's, it's, it's an internationally known event to people who know about cider. So, so, so
3: tell me about one like, great little thing that happened at last year's Cider Days.
4: Oh, gee, we had Tom Oliver there from Herefordshire, and he was a big celebrity. Uh, he's a great cider and perry maker and a wonderful guy, very interesting fellow. And he was sort of, uh, he did a, uh, Brit- uh, not a British, but an English, he, he said, he corrected me, he said, it's not British, it's English cider. <laughs> so uh, he did a, a tasting of West Country ciders, and, uh, and that was really uh, spectacular. And we're hoping this year to get a fellow from... Um, Brittany over uh, to to send us Breton ciders, which are less well known in this country and far less available than Normandy ciders. So that should be a, an interesting thing if he can come over and Have do a American couple Sider. workshops. Yeah,
3: Have, um, you think there's a lot for American cider makers to learn from Europe? Do you think there's a lot for American cider makers to learn from Europe?
4: Yeah, I think there is, uh, and and vice versa, too. I mean, Americans are doing some really interesting things. And, you know, in, in England, it seems like the traditions are there and people aren't varying very much. It's like you find some other places in Europe that they have a way of doing things and they don't really vary from it. And what we're good at in America is innovating and uh, trying out different things, different yeasts, different apple varieties, just experimenting, much more so, I find, than, than in Europe. So there's plenty that the Europeans could learn from us, too, now that we're relearning things.
3: I know you must have a hundred stories. I'm sure you have thousands of stories. So let, let's pick a cider maker. So last night you were at West and in Lower East Side, and uh, w- w- which uh,
4: cider maker was there? Uh, it Sh- was Shaxbury from uh, there around uh, Middlebury, Vermont, uh, up near there. And some of the ciders they have, they make, and some of the ciders they import. They import a West Country cider from England, and they import a Basque cider. And that was what they had last night. They actually had barrels of the the new Basque cider there that they, that they tapped in what... You would call in uh, in the Basque country where I got to visit last year. They would they call it choch. It's spelled T X O T X, but it's pronounced choch. And that's what the cider maker yells when he opens up one of these huge chestnut barrels that they have over there. He opens a tap, and the cider arcs out of the uh, of the barrel, and you, you all have to run over there with your big wide glasses and and take about two inches of cider in the bottom of the glass. The reason they do it is because it aerates their cider. Their cider isn't carbonated at all. So by either pouring it from a height like they do in Asturias in Spain, or by you know shooting it out of the barrel into your glass, you get it gets oxygenated and it becomes a little livelier, like you know, it, it gives it a little bit of life. And in fact they don't like it when you, you have to drink it off in one draught. A little bit of cider, but drink it continuously and then throw whatever is the leaves in the in the gutter or something. They have all these gutters all over the cider houses, and you just sort of throw the, throw the yeast that's left over in there. So and,
2: no sipping allowed, just... Um,
4: no, glass. in fact, uh, I had a Spanish cider maker look at my glass, and I said, what's the, what's the matter? And he said, your cider is dead. <laughs> and he forced me to get another glass, because they they really want to show their cider off in the best possible light, and if it's flat or still, they think it's not good.
3: I'm down with that. You guys aren't even drinking your cider right now. This is a breakfast cider show, so you got to drink it.
4: I'm I'm,
2: I'm
3: advocating cider instead of cappuccinos for breakfast.
2: It's a great way to start, and this is a lovely cider. It's
4: It's nice with lunch. You know, have this with a um, like a salad and Mm -hmm. um, a good piece of homemade bread or something for lunch. In the summertime, you could drink half a bottle of this stuff, and you wouldn't even get. Tipsy, you know, it's it's a very mild, nice introduction. It's one of the first really good craft ciders I had years ago. They've been making this for a long time. So I'm doing some yard work, cutting the
3: grass, drink some cider. I know a problem. lot of our listeners they'll do that. They'll they'll be drinking a beer and, and have their headsets on, listening to the show when they're cutting the grass. So. Well, but we this recommend doesn't,
4: this one. Yeah, and it doesn't <laughs> and it doesn't and it doesn't really weigh you down like it would have three or four beers, you know. It's it's nice.
2: It's also really beautiful. It's very festive. I mean as soon as you see it in the glass it's just this lovely red color. I yeah, and lo- just it, wanted unless you were ma- and share it.
4: Unless you were making it from a red-fleshed apple like this, this kind of color would be really shocking and kind of a flaw almost in cider, because you don't really want a coppery orange or red color in your, your cider. It, it indicates something might have gone weird, but in this case, it's perfectly natural. because It looks
3: like a ruby rosé wine kind of color. Mm-hmm. I was shocked when I, I, I got this, the West County Cider, we, we got this... Uh, for
4: Sider Week in New York this year, and uh, I was taken with it, you know. It's red color, red field, and... Uh, I would use this in any in any way you would use a rosé. I mean, I would use it, like, a ro- instead of a rosé, because um, it's just, it's that kind of quality. It's easy drinking, it's light, it's it's summery. I think of summer when I think and of it's this.
3: And it's beautiful with different cheeses,
4: and... Mm-hmm.
3: So let's go back to Saturday. So uh, Terry Maloney founded the event. Mm-hmm. Getting a chamber of
4: commerce involved or, is very interesting. You know, so it's really a, a community-based event. Well, it's a county-wide um, because they're they're historic. It's historically such a good uh, apple-growing region and cider-producing region that um, you know they decided to focus on this as a, as one of their big events of the uh, of the year. So we meet throughout the year to plan for for next year. Every month we we uh, volunteer. It's a volunteer event. We don't you know it's a non-profit event in the sense that yeah we we make some money but not a lot i mean we just we just do it for the sake of doing it and bringing attention to the county and and the traditions of apple growing and cider and to try to promote cider massachusetts um, has some really cool counties there there's
3: a one once town Brimfield, that's the big uh, antiques and yep, flea market town yep.
4: Yep. people know that and you've got what county is the cider days in? it's in franklin county so if you were going to think of the biggest town in there, it's probably Greenfield, which is a very, we call it a city, but it's a pretty, pretty small city. And it really is very convenient, too, for people in New York, Connecticut, everything, because it's right up um, Interstate 91. So really, a lot of people have, have, uh, are in reach of it, probably millions of people. I don't want to encourage millions of people to come because our venues are pretty small, but we do have a few thousand people come to come to it over the course of the weekend.
2: Well, and it's a very family-oriented as well. There are things that are mm-hmm. not alcoholic cider-related that... Yep. are orchard-based and
4: we have child and- kid-friendly uh yes. events at a lot of the orchards and a lot of the uh, the things are uh, either involved with uh maybe uh cooking uh at with apples or something or but we do have a lot of uh, a lot of hard cider events on the amateur and the commercial sides too Is is everything in one location so you can walk around, or is it spread throughout the county? It's spread throughout the county, and in fact, this year we're spreading it even more. We're really going from—there's one orchard called New Salem Orchard over near— the big Quabbin Reservoir over on the east side of the county, and they're very distant from we're actually moving, we have to move because we keep growing every year, to uh, the, the cider salon is actually going to be at a ski area, Berkshire East Ski Area, which is all the way on the other side of the county in Charlemont, lovely town on the western sort of edge of uh, Franklin County. So we really span the whole county. Um, you know, but there are events clustered in different places, and you can go to one or two places. You don't have to go to everything.
3: Okay, what, what's a typical event that you went to? Well, we time? went to the
2: cider salon and got the tip from Eric West: buy tickets to both salons because there are two additions to times you can go, and it was a good idea because you just can't get through all the ciders in one walk through. It's, very crowded, and there's a lot of cider, and you really a lot of ciders you've never had, so you want to try those. But the workshops were wonderful. Mm-hmm. We went to uh, workshops and talks with uh-huh. Rowan Jacobson and John Bunker, mm-hmm. which was very educational. And there was a great workshop, the Cider to Juice or the Juice to Cider, excuse yep. me, where we, you tasted apples, then you tasted the juice, and then you tasted a fermented. So you really understood the process. And it was with Steve Wood from Farnham Hill, wow. John Bunker,
3: and Ben. It sounds amazing. You know, your, your book, uh, Cider Hard and Sweet by Ben Watson, I mean, this is really cool. I'm just opening up the first chapter of the history of cider.
4: There's a photo of an old screw-type cider press. That's from Normandy, I think. Um, I believe that's where it is. Or no, actually, it's from the uh, Jersey Islands, I think. So, so how different, like the good, I also want to define, you know, We've, we've been talking with like guys like Steve
3: Wood about what is real cider, or the, there's the American fine cider movement. And then uh, an imported cider that I, I had, I didn't even know it was called a ready-to-drink beverage. You know, there's, there's, there's these other products that aren't really ciders that are being labeled as ciders. But let's go back to the history. I mean, what is cider, and um, you know, is it
4: being made any differently now than it was 200 years ago? Um, you don't have to make it any differently. I mean it's shockingly um, easy to easy to make and you can make it in the most primitive kind of ways. I mean one of the things that we went to in the Basque, Cider Museum, which I would recommend to anybody. It's over in Astagaraja in the Basque country. They had guys who were standing around in you know, berets and, and smashing apples in a big wooden trough. It was an auge peel, you know, like a big mortar and pestle, and that's where they were crushing their apples that they were going to be pressing. So it can be that primitive, but yeah sure i mean now we have stainless steel tanks and various things like various adjuncts that people use and people are experimenting with lots of different flavorings and different yeast strains and things but at at its basic level cider making is very very much the same as it has always been for the last two thousand years probably it's just fermenting fresh juice of freshly pressed apples and that's how i would define you know real cider it's 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 defined by using real juice. I mean, you can add all sorts of stuff to it and change it, but at its base, it's just letting apples do what they want to do when you crush them and press them into juice.
3: Here's a quote from him, and this is a really cool book, Cider Hard and Sweet. And he says, Cider in America, there's a quote from 1801, this dude Lazarus Redstreak, which sounds like a name of an apple, doesn't it? It is a name (laughs) of an apple. It was a pseudonym, yeah. Yeah. It says, experience shows that the use of cider consists with sound, healthy, and long life. Our inhabitants are settled in favor of it. The New Englanders are of all people the longest livers. Why then try an innovation so difficult, so doubtful to say the least, in point of health and economy, as a substitution of beer in the place of cider?
4: Well, you got to remember that beer, especially in New England, they weren't ma- they weren't making ale over here. Uh, the, the early settlers because at that time the climate was even was colder than it is now and, and at the time now you can grow barley in parts of New England and, and some people are experimenting with that but at that time it, it was too cold to grow barley it wouldn't grow well at all and so they, they could either import it, which wasn't very, I mean, it took so long to get it here, and it was also so expensive to get it from England. So they, they tried everything. They tried fermenting just about everything, the, the native persimmon, the American persimmon. They tried making pumpkin beers and things like that, which is kind of funny because now we have all these products. But they're not made primarily from pumpkins. That's just the flavoring. But they were actually making beer out of pumpkins, and nothing was very good. And they didn't really trust the water. They didn't like the taste of the water. Sometimes it was polluted surface waters. So what could you drink? And they finally figured out, wow, apples grow really well over here. And we've got and you've got this huge tree that maybe has twenty five or forty bushels of apples on it. What the heck do we do with that? How do we keep these things? Well, this is a way of preserving it by making alcohol out of it and putting it in barrels and having it as your daily drink. Just like we are now. for breakfast. Yeah. Now it's nine forty-five in the morning. John Adams, we're we're in the uh, we're in the uh, the great tradition of uh, of John Adams, who used to have a quart tankard of cider for breakfast every morning, and he he was fairly, full, firmly convinced that it was it was he drank it for health reasons. It was a healthful beverage. Interesting guy. Also from Massachusetts. Also from Quincy, Massachusetts. So
3: you're also talking
4: about things like
3: single variety, varieties of, of apples. Um, in your book you're mentioning the Harrison Apple uh, do you want to talk about that apple? Because it's pretty interesting that each apple kind of has its own history.
4: Yeah. Oh, yeah. The history of apple varieties is really fascinating. And the Harrison was one that was celebrated by uh, William Cox, who was a famous pomologist and apple writer back in the early 19th century. And he wrote about it, and he said it made you know one of the best ciders. Uh, and it was, like a lot of these apples, it was from New Jersey, too. And it was from uh, somewhere around Livingston or Newark. Newark used to have an enormous... Uh, used to make a lot of really high-quality cider down in Newark, and um, and was a great apple-growing region, and then it disappeared, and nobody knew where it was. It and was
2: lost for quite some time. It was yeah. lost
4: for decades, if not almost, you know, maybe a hundred years think. or so. Yeah, and and uh, a fellow up in Vermont uh, discovered a tree that he thought was the was the apple, and then my friend Tom Burford from Virginia, who's who's forgotten more about apples than any of us will ever know. He found another tree in New Jersey, and he's really been the most, resp- most responsible for promoting the Harrison Cider Apple. If you press a Harrison Cider Apple, it makes this thick, sweet, viscous juice. It's dark-colored, and it makes a wonderful—most apples are not good at single-variety ciders, but the Harrison makes an excellent single-variety cider.
2: How many people are growing it now? I mean, it's been grafted a little bit, and it's around the country. Yeah,
4: it's getting spread around because the its reputation as a as a great cider apple is uh, is spreading. So uh, that's people. It's a small apple. It's it's not bitter really, but it has a lot of um, what we call polyphenols, sort of like tannins or something. It gives it a structure and it makes it a really good good apple to grow.
3: It's really cool. You brought all these books too, so you know. I love books, and I love reading about things, but not too many people would know these books. I mean, Apples of North America by Tom Burford. So he's your friend, and uh, it really lists,
4: like, how many apples are in this book? Each page is a I think different variety. I was going to mm-hmm. say almost 200, I think, yeah. Like that. And there's
3: a photo of the apple, and... Uh, just like you just mentioned, the Harrison, and it says, It is remarkable that a cider maker of this merit disappeared from cultivation and was on the brink of extinction. The juice from Harrison apples makes an extremely dark, rich cider with exceptional mouthfeel. It's, uh, I have measured the volume as approximately 18% greater of juice than wine sap, another renowned cider variety.
4: Yeah, it's a very dense, sugary apple. That ripens in October, and uh, I just bought a couple of Harrison trees myself that I just put into my little heritage orchard that I that I keep mainly to to just sell young trees to people. So, do the, do the cider
3: trees? They just mutate. So it's like they say, each you can't reproduce. a a cider tree from its seed each seed could be what thousand different
4: well each seed could be different in an apple if you have five seeds in an apple in the same apple in the same apple because it depends what pollinates it you know and it's pollinated by bees so so you don't really know unless you control the pollination like they do at you know university agricultural stations or something then you can have a known parent if you isolate the blossoms but but yeah, I mean you have to graft it. I mean you have to you have to take a cutting off of the tree that you know the variety of and if you want, and if you want to grow a new tree then you attach it to a, a piece of rootstock that you buy or in the old days dig up off of the tree. And people don't do that much, but they but they buy size controlling rootstocks. But it could be a standard size, a big tree, or a semi dwarf, or even a dwarf tree. But you have to attach it to those roots and then plant the tree, and then you'll have genetically. It's a it's a kind of cloning. It, it is cloning,
2: which is fascinating. That you think that an apple that maybe was discovered or named in 1650, if you're eating that apple now, it is a clone from that
4: yeah it's a real garbage. connection to history I um, mean if you yes. have like an apple like the Osopus Spitzenberg which is a New York apple that Thomas Jefferson famously loved and tried to grow but didn't grow very successfully down in Virginia uh, you know if you're eating that apple you're eating essentially the same apple that Thomas Jefferson was was eating 200 years ago so it's a real connection with history
3: we're having a great conversation we went way over the segment we're going to keep talking <laughs> I'll tell you, we'll take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. All right.
1: In 1996, El Knife & Son acquired Union Beer Distributors, which was originally located on Union Avenue in Brooklyn, but has since expanded to its present location alongside the English Kills Canal in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Union Beer has grown dramatically in the last decade as the primary distributor of Anheuser-Busch products for Kings County, Brooklyn, through the hiring and development of the best people in the industry. In 2003, Union Beer acquired a powerful catalog of specialty brands, which immediately positioned them as the craft beer supplier to accounts in Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, and Staten Island.
3: Hey, hey, hey. welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. This is a special show with author and event producer uh, Ben Watson from Cider Days in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. It's really cool. We're doing a breakfast cider session here at Jimmy's number 43, and that's about 9.45 in the morning. We're drinking cider and talking about the culture of cider. So we're talking about Massachusetts and some special single varieties of, of apples and cider days. But now we're jumping over to Michigan. So, Ben, you know... It's quite a wide world of cider, isn't it, even in America?
4: It is, and there are a lot of cider regions that have developed um, that have great numbers of cider uh, producers in them, and one of them is the Great Lakes, especially Michigan, um, a little bit more southern Wisconsin for some reason. There are some cider producers in Wisconsin, but the Great Lakes, well, they grow so much fruit there. I mean, apples, pears, cherries. Uh, they really grow a lot of great fruit out there because the climate is mild enough with the uh, with the with the lakes around there. So um, it makes sense that it would be a a natural place to have cider. But this is one of Mike Beck's ciders that we're trying, Uncle John's uh, Cider Mill. In uh, the middle of Michigan, he says the middle of the Mitten, St. Johns, uh, it's north of Lansing. And uh, he's he's great. He's the president still, I believe, of the uh, um, Cider Producers uh, U.S. Cider Producers Organization, and uh, a great guy, very good advocate for cider. This is actually a um, the Baldwin. We're trying the Baldwin. It's a um, it's an old, probably the first commercially widespread apple variety in the country it was discovered around 1740 in Wilmington Massachusetts so it's a Massachusetts apple but it was spread all over the place because it was so useful for so many different purposes including cider it makes a great single variety cider um, you know what, what oh, this is
3: cool so this is Michigan so I know that's where like you know for the beer world is that like Greg Hall after they sold Goose Island he opened his operations in Michigan I've heard a lot about the fruit growing culture there and also the states seem to be really supportive of that industry.
4: Yep, very much so. Yeah, they, um, they've really helped to support the uh, winemakers and cider makers and uh, it's a great place to visit and, and they're they do a lot of they're doing a lot of interesting things including a lot of, they do a lot of fruit ciders out there like ciders with cherry or ciders with peach or, or other kinds of fruits because they grow so many different kinds of fruit out there and they, they grow pears so they make some perries as well. But pears are kind of tricky. They don't tend to, they're harder to make than cider, I find. And if you're using dessert pears, sometimes they're pretty good. Like uh, sometimes good old, um, uh, you know, some, some of the old varieties are, are, uh, are okay. But, but a lot of them just don't make very interesting tasting pear ciders or perries. You know
3: Tom Oliver from from England. He's not in Britain, but England. Uh, when I interviewed him a couple of years ago, he said it takes about fifty years for a good Perry tree to grow.
4: Yeah, the the expression is uh, pears for your heirs. And uh, and Steve Wood always tells me that you know he's gonna he, he's gonna he's starting to get Perry pears off of his trees, but as he says, he's going to be on two sticks by the time they start really producing heavily. Uh, uh, he makes very good peri, but again, those are those are varieties that are like the, akin to the European cider apples, except they're even more inedible than, if possible, than the than the apples. They are very bitter, they're very tricky. Some of them you have to press within one or two days of harvesting them, and you have to harvest them at just the right time too. So it's it's a real trick um, to to try to make good peri with some of these varieties, but a great perry is is wonderful. So what's what's the life of, of a
3: cider you know orchard orchardist like? You know so many of them.
4: Yeah, I mean it's you know worrying about stuff like we have all these weird, unpredictable climate changes now, especially you know like a couple of years ago. I think it was three years ago, uh, New York and New England and the Great Lakes. People lost like 90% plus, yeah, because we had a uh, an April where it got up into the 80s, and finally the apple trees just gave up and said, okay, well, I guess it's spring now, so we'll bloom. And then we got a regular frost, like we always do, and it right during bloom time, and it killed all of the blossoms. So you never know. I mean, it's one of those things that you could lose your entire crop, or you could have a bumper crop the next year, and often that's the case. Um and, you know, it's, it's, it's tricky if you're growing a big planting, like, I'm mean, when I say big, like 40 to 80 or 100 acres. You know, do you spray? How much do you spray? <clears throat> How much do you have to protect against various pests and, and problems? Can I do it organically? One of the great things about cider is that they don't have to be cosmetically perfect. I mean, you just have to get apples, fruit that's relatively healthy. So that's a good thing because you don't have to grow it to sell it you know, a market.
3: What about like the press, the press technology? Cause like in your book, there's like this
4: old screw press. Yeah. Is the technology very different than it was 200 years ago? There are new press models. You can still, you can still do the old rack and cloth presses. That's what we use. My friends and I, when we, make cider. We use this big hundred year old rack and cloth press that you swing around hundred and eighty degrees under a there are belts and pulleys and things and, and that's an old fashioned one. But now a lot of people use um, what they call squeeze box presses that look like a big accordion and that squeezes the, the cider and presses it that way. Some people use what they call continuous belt presses where the, 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 the apple ground apples are pressed between two belts. So, yeah, I mean, it changes, but the basics are, are still the same. The technology changes sometimes. So, Gay, you, you, did you pick the Ciders today?
2: Um, yes, I did. Did. I did. Based off what you had on hand and what Ben wanted to talk about. We So why, you, to why did you pick
3: Uncle John's from Michigan? And where did you get it? That's well,
2: I, Kay Michaels and I went to Blint Cap this year, so first time there, and explored Grand Rapids and went home with a case of cider, courtesy of Mike Beth. And this was one of the ciders, and we thought, why not talk about this region?
3: So, Michigan. So, what's Glintcap? Says it says Great Lakes International Cider and Perry Competition, Glintcap.
4: Yep, you want First time I've ever heard of it.
2: Well, it's the cider association, cider and perry association, out there for ten or eleven years now.
4: Right, has no. been
2: doing uh, a competition where ciders come in from all over the it's world. It's a
4: pro-am competition so they get a lot of uh, home cider makers. I've entered it once or twice before and um, it's harder to win medals there now because the ciders are getting better but, uh, but they also get ciders from around the country and increasingly international ones too. I, I did a, a flight of um, Spanish commercial ciders this year. I judged uh, that flight uh, but it's you know, it's 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 something that is probably under promoted. Uh, they don't really have a very sophisticated uh, promotional machine, but it, it actually is a fair, it's become a very significant event, and it's become the largest or the second largest, depending on who you talk to, um, competition, open competition in the world. The oldest one is the Royal Bath & West show, which is going on right about now over in Somerset in England. I think England.
2: Tom Oliver just got a best-in show there.
4: Yeah, I think it just happened last weekend or something, but uh, that's the oldest one. That's been going since like the mid-19th century. But this this new one has, has in Michigan, the Glint Cap, has has really attracted a lot of entrants, and uh, people take it pretty seriously. They... they uh, Especially new cider makers, they want to see how their stuff measures up to everybody else's, and it's kind of a good gauge to improving your It's stuff.
2: very challenging as a, a new judge. It was really exciting. I was very fortunate. My first panel, because you're divided into three different panels throughout the day, it's hours of cider tasting. I was with uh, Ben Watson and another uh, cider maker. So just really learned a lot because it's blind tasting. I think our first uh, group was 12 ciders. You blind taste. You have to score it on a very specific score sheet. And the cider makers will see your notes, so you have to be very accurate and really focus on the cider. It's
4: so also it's something that's accredited by, and I helped with a few other people establish some of the style guidelines, which have since changed a little bit and been refined. But it's approved or accredited by the Beer Judge Certification Program, the BJCP, and we actually have some BJCP judges who know more about ciders who, who participate in it every year.
3: That was one of my questions: is how do you how do you pick or, or certify the judges?
4: Yeah. Well, we have some some judges who have interest in cider and who've maybe drunk ciders, uh, but ha- don't have a lot of experience in 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 judging. And um, I think the, the way we do it is we have for new judges a, a training session the, the night before the competition and um, a couple of guys in the, in the organization, the Great Lakes organization, uh, Gary Audie and, and Charles McGonigal who's a cider maker in Wisconsin get up and they alter a base cider with different chemicals so that you can tell what you're tasting the next day what does it mean when they say something is mousy? If you get that kind of a flavor to it, what does that mean? Well, you know, maybe it's a little bit of a uh, uh, so, sort of the, 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 the you get a taste of oats or Cheerios or something like that in your mouth, and you say, hmm, I think this might be mousy. And, and you can request at the, from one of the stewards a little water and baking soda, and that's how you really know. You taste a little bit of water and baking soda, and then you'll get the sort of aroma of the bottom of a mouse cage or something. Some people are very sensitive to that. I am not particularly sensitive, so everybody's palate is different, but that's why you have three judges so on it. You have the
3: off, off flavors. I know that is it's in beer
4: judging. What are some other off flavors that you get
3: from the cider?
4: Uh, well, I mean, again, it's sort of in the eye of the beholder. It can be, I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be really repellent, but it's, you know, you get too much something like, uh, we call it Jolly Rancher, um, sort of like that Jolly Rancher candy taste, a green apple kind of uh, flavor. Or you can get something like acetone, like a you know, nail polish or something like that in there. And, and it's, it's just a question of how much is in there. It's not necessarily whether it's present or not. So um, in my notes, thank you, Gay, for the notes, uh, this year at the Glint Cap, so Eden
3: Ashley sparkling Dry Cider, made by Eleanor and Albert Legere, who we've had on the show They were the victors of the 2015 Glencap Best of Show. Now, what does that mean? I mean, is that huge for them? Is 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 it something that you would expect to walk in there and win?
4: Well, they've done very well over the years, and I mean, this is the only real. uh, It's a dry sparkling cider. This is the only cider that they make. They make an ice cider, which is a completely different thing, and their ice ciders are have won in the past Best in Show in the Fortified Cider categories or the Spirits and Fortified Ciders, so it wouldn't be a big surprise for them to win in that category, for, but for them to win for their only cider that they make.
2: Which is very new.
4: Which them. is rather new. It's From only a couple of years I think they've been making it, but it really is a tremendous cider, and when I heard that they had won, I was very pleased for them because it, it really validates their, their abilities. I mean, that that's the that was the best in class for all commercial ciders in the main category that that, 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 that won for. So that, that really is saying something about what they're doing up there. That cider is about 50% Kingston Black. We, we were talking about Kingston Black apples. It's a British bitter sharp variety. That some people grow in this country now, but that is uh, tricky to grow. Doesn't grow well everywhere. Does in Vermont and Western New Hampshire, it seems to anyway, as well as it grows anywhere. And uh, and it makes that's another one that makes a, a vintage cider. And you could make a single variety Kingston Black cider out of it, and it tastes quite nice.
3: You know, last year for Cider Week New York, uh, Gay helped organize a, a Kingston Black show and tasting. You know, why did you pick that varietal? Is it just something that's catching on with with cider makers?
2: There were a handful of cider makers that were currently making something with Kingston Black, and I thought it was a good way to start talking about varietal versus blend and what apples bring to cider and just start thinking about that topic.
4: And we've had, at Cider Days, we've, we've had panels before where we've had three or four people, different producers, who all make a Kingston Black, and it's remarkable. They can be there in, in three three cases of the four. I think they were all using the same apples from the same producer, Steve Wood, who, who because there aren't that many people who grow it, or they were using juice from him, and they all got very different results. So cider really is a local product. You're not going to get the same thing depending on who's making making the cider.
2: Well, and I think tasting one apple and then seeing the different expressions lets you really focus your understanding of what's going on because if you taste seven different American ciders right now there's so much diversity it's hard if you're just starting out as a cider taster or drinker to just wrap your head around the different concepts that are in the glass
3: yep that's cool you know we're going to take a short break we'll be back in a few minutes on beer sessions radio still I don't want to
2: go to bed
4: They actually run a nursery and, a, uh, and an orchard, although they don't grow in nearly enough apples themselves. They have to buy in apples because they're making so much cider now. But it's a beautiful place. Uh, and this is an interesting cider. This was just released about a week or so ago. I hadn't even had this before yet, but I agree with Jimmy. This is nice. This is good stuff. I, uh, Black twig is an interesting variety. I believe it's the uh, the, the state apple of Tennessee, and that this is what they specialize in. They do a lot of single-variety ciders. Chuck Shelton, who's the cider maker down there, he makes a Virginia wine sap. He does a gold rush. Uh, he does various other single-variety apple wines or ciders. And um, and the Black Twig is a new one, and I, I think it uh, it holds up well. The mouth feels very nice. Um, it's got some kind of funkiness or mustiness to it, which I kind of like in this uh I'm I'm digging this so far. So it's
3: Albemarle from uh, Charlottesville, Virginia. And
2: they have worked with Tom Burford, correct? Oh, yeah. Vintage Virginia apples, so there's quite a connection there with keeping the history of these regional apples alive. So so, so so
3: we have the book, Tom Burford's Apples of North America. So it's more than a book. I mean, is he working to save he's varieties of apples?
2: a fruit historian and preservationist. And-
4: right, he is, and he, he's a consultant, too. He goes a lot around the country consulting with people on their uh, estates or or projects or things if they want to grow apples. But the reason he has such a strong connection with the Sheltons is because he and his brother, Tom and his brother, ran for several years a, a nursery with a lot of historic varieties, especially southern varieties called Burford Brothers and um, and when they shut it down the apples that they were um, growing there, they actually uh, either moved or did cuttings or something over to the uh, Shelton's Orchard, the Vintage Virginia apples, and that sort of that nursery business sort of is a takeoff as a direct result from Burford Brothers. So it's sort of in the next generation, and he he consults there. He's up there once every couple of weeks usually to uh, to do events, grafting workshops, or And
2: he's a wonderful speaker. He's so inspiring, and he has such great stories about all these apples, and it's so connected to just American heritage and. It's...
3: He's definitely. Yeah. the Saturdays
4: they all come together, right? Yeah, uh, Tom Burford usually comes every other year to cider days. He'll be back there this this November, um, and he's always one of the big attractions. People love to see him and talk to him, and he's he's always on even when he's even when he's not doing workshops. He loves talking to people, and uh, he he gets out and around and. Uh, and talks to talks to people one on one as well as you know, being a speaker.
3: This show's been cool because we we talk about Saturdays, in Massachusetts, and we talk about Uncle John's in Michigan and, and the, the, the Great Lakes, uh, the Glencap event, and now we're down in Virginia. You know, I, I had for many years the Foggy Ridge. Uh, we served by the glass, chimneys number forty three, and I think I've had Alb- Albemarle before. But I mean, what other cider makers are there, and, and what's the culture in Virginia? Because I know they have their own Virginia cider week now.
4: They do, and um, yeah, as a result of New York Cider Week being successful, they started a Virginia Cider Week, and um, in late November, I think, sort of more around Thanksgiving. And um, it's, it's, again, like the Great Lakes, it's a growing, uh, growing culture down there. Uh, there aren't as many producers down there, but it's, it's growing in Virginia and in North Carolina. And if you think about it, it's up in the mountains. Charlottesville's in the mountains. And, uh and, and up in northern Virginia, they grow a lot of apples in, um, way up in Winchester, right on the, the, the uh, West Virginia border, just south of there in the upper part of the Shenandoah Valley. Huge apple orchards that that with the like in the Northeast with the loss of uh, wholesale business, you know what do you do with these orchards? Well, you either develop them to house lots, which you know is fine to an extent, but you don't want to lose all your apple orchards. Now they're actually Virginia Tech is working with them to provide technical assistance, and the state is very interested in promoting things because they there are a lot of wineries down there. And now there are more people making cider as well. There's a good company called Potter's Craft Cider in Charlottesville. And I think they're going to come up to Cider Days this year as well for the first time.
2: Castle Hill is down there.
4: Yeah, Castle Hill is a beautiful estate. Um, different county, but it's in Nelson County. But, um, but yeah, there's a, there are a number of really high-quality producers down in Virginia.
2: Now, do you feel that there is a distinct virginia style or that you're seeing or in that region of the shenandoah that there's something different than if you were
4: I think it's developing. We used to have this question all the time. I used to ask this, you know, are there regional styles of cider? And, you know, 5 years ago my answer might have been a little different, but now Different people in different regions are discovering varieties that grow particularly well for them, or that they like their historic varieties and they were used in the past, or maybe they're just ones that they like that they're using in their different regions. Like in the Great Lakes and the Midwest, they use a lot of um, a variety called a winter banana. They grow much more of it out there than they do in the Northeast, although we do, some people grow it. It's a nice apple. Um, and in the Finger Lakes and the Hudson Valley, they grow a lot of northern spy, and so their ciders have a lot of that northern spy quality. We don't really use that so much in New England, but, you know, that's their apple. And then down in Virginia, I would say the wine sap, the black twig, you know, other varieties down there. Hughes, Crab, uh, Harrison, they're using all those quite quite a lot.
3: So this is this, so the Albemarle, the black twig. It, it's quite an interesting cider. I mean... How, how would you walk us through the, the taste profile of that? Let's, I know we did it before. But let's I'm going to give
2: it that one to Ben.
4: Oh, you are? Okay, I thank you. To, like, like,
2: as if, say, to say you're,
3: judging, you're judging a competition. Yeah. Let's do that. And you're tasting the cider. What, what
4: are you looking for? I'd say it has it has some pretty good, um, it's not hard tannin, but it's got a good structure to it. And it's also got a really good mouthfeel. It's got sort of a little bit more of a rounded mouthfeel, not quite as minerally as some of their cider's from Albemarle it's not really austere it's got good fruit in it it's very you know I'm getting lots of lots of fruitiness including some you know citrus notes and uh, maybe stone fruit a little bit you know this this
3: cider is inspiring me I'm going to read it from. uh, we had a question from a guest says, my name is John Adams. It's 1783, and I'm living outside of Boston, Massachusetts. I'm worried about the the health properties of the water, and uh, I want to live a long life. So every day I would drink a glass of this stuff. I mean, like, John Adams, you're brilliant, because I feel that way right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when when you're writing your books, do you go back and – are guys like John Adams and these other historical figures, do they actually write about cider? Do they – do they talk about like the flavors, and or they just
4: drink it? Or I think they just drank it because it? it was so you know it was so ubiquitous in early America that um, you know everybody drank it. Even kids drank a watered down version of the uh, the cider, which is made from. Rehydrating the the pressed apples, so you you would put a little water on there and then press it again and make a very weak cider. So even kids were drinking this to a certain extent. Now your kids would probably be taken away by DSS or something if you you know served them cider. But but back in those days, this and is you, your kids are now everyone up to under twenty one. Yeah, <laughs> so you're exactly. twenty years old and you're a kid. Yeah, but you know everybody from laborers in the fields. I mean some people were in the early days even paid with cider and that was the thing. It was a, it was a uh, a means of exchange. There wasn't a lot of hard currency around and economies were very local cuz they had to be. And and you couldn't move the road systems weren't good, you know, unless you lived on the coast or on a big river or something. You really couldn't move goods around as much in the early days. And so cider was something for it was a commodity. And it was and everybody made it almost. And you know, and the few people who weren't farmers, this is what you'd pay your minister or your school teacher, you know, part of their wages or most of their wages would be in commodities like cider.
3: You know, one time on the show we, we had uh, there are some people that have tried to live a monk's life, like during Lent, just, just drinking beer alone for a month, and it's usually like a homebrew style, dark, you know, a lot of malty qualities. If I tried to live just on cider, a good cider, what would it provide for me nutritionally and what would I need to eat to you know, to supplement it nutritionally?
4: Well cider has I mean it has vitamins well, in it. I mean, it, was, it has, that's
3: cool. <laughs> you
4: know, you can you can get I mean there's vitamins A, B, C in there and it's supposedly good for a lot of your body systems, like your liver, your pancreas, your stomach. It's it's good for, you know, it's a diuretic, a mild diuretic, you know, so you may have to run to the bathroom a little bit more, but it's, it's good for your... Inners, basically, you know, in moderation. Every everything Great in moderation. Cider style,
0: good for your innards. good for your inners. But what,
3: what yeah. would I supplement it with? You know, do I have to have like a little meat, or do I not? Cheese and I water. just
4: live on cider alone? I don't think you could probably live on cider alone. But it's it, it's a it's a darn good beverage to uh, if you were drinking nothing else. You know, I, I I would I like beer, I like wine, but if I had to subsist on cider along with food, I could do it very happily. Eggs, right. cheese. Cider. Yeah, you want to pop that last one?
2: I absolutely will.
3: So, another album or cider. So, it is really cool. I mean, d- d- just talking to you, Ben, I've, I've, as I said, you know, my introduction to this world of, of, of hard cider, uh, all the great people like Gay and, and, and Crystal Halt have said, you've got to go to Cider Days. And, you know, it's one of those things where one year goes by and two years and three years, and
4: now I'm like, I, I got to go this year.
2: You must. So it's I- like the Woodstock, Woodstock for cider makers and enthusiasts.
4: It is the big, one of the biggest events, um, you know, even though we're, we're in a modest-sized county and we have modest-sized venues. We don't want to move it out of Franklin County. Uh, we even talked about moving it a little bit farther cheers. south cheers, uh, to Springfield or Hartford or something like that. And it just wouldn't be the same event. You've got to have the orchards, and it's, a, it's, a, it's an event that the orchards are very important to. And it's about apples as well as cider, that connection. You really want to make that. We yeah. have a cider maker's workshop. If you want to start making cider, we do a, a workshop on Saturday morning at Pine Hill Orchards, where you can. The cost of the workshop includes all of the basic equipment that you'll need to make cider, a, a carboy and various other things. Come as part of the registration for so it. So you
2: walk away a cider maker.
4: And you get the juice too. And if you just want to come up and buy juice and to make cider, they have that Redfield juice. We tried a Redfield cider earlier. You can buy 100% Redfield juice. Uh, up there and make your own Redfield cider.
2: I did not so know a, that.
4: A quick
3: shout out. So, f- For me, when I think Massachusetts, I'm thinking West County cider, which is, is one of my favorite, if not the favorite American cider makers. So, in your county, Franklin County, are those other orchards, are they making cider as well? Um, or they're just growing out?
4: Well, they're not making, they're, they're pressing cider. They're not making hard cider, most of them. There are other producers around there. There are other Western Massachusetts producers like Cars. Cider House and uh, Headwater Cider and several others uh, Bear Swamp is another orchard that they, they uh, have some apples growing wild on their, their farm and they do very interesting stuff too.
2: The Friday night Cider Makers Dinner this last year was all Massachusetts ciders yep. I think and it was really a very interesting like, All from quality, Western
4: Massachusetts I think really we have impressive. seven different producers a lot of there. Them very small, a lot of them very small Can you mention
3: a couple of them?
4: I just did the Bear bear Swamp Orchard. There's one called Bear Meadow, which is even smaller. That's sort of almost a nano cidery. But um, Headwater Cider. Artifact? um, Artifact is a new one from Springfield, Massachusetts. They're not in the county, but they're so close that we count them. Yeah, and they always come. But they're they're a new cider maker last year, so this is their second year.
2: There was someone making really lovely Palma as well.
4: Yeah, that was Carr's Cider House from Hadley. They're, they're a good maker. But there are also good ones in that. eastern Massachusetts, too. There are a few there that are coming on. Uh, a place in Salem, Massachusetts called Far From the Tree that uh, makes very interesting ciders that they age on everything from mint to uh, orange peel and, uh, and other flavorings. And there's a great cider maker, they source some of their apples from Franklin County, but it's in Somerville, in part of Boston, called Bantam Cider. That is, they make, those two ladies make excellent ciders.
3: That's great. So, our last, you we, we popped the, the Albemarle, which one is this?
2: This is the Old Virginia Wine Sap, and maybe Ben can tell us a little bit about that apple.
4: Yeah, the Wine Sap, nobody really knows how, really how old it is. It was mentioned, you know, in the early 18th century, but it's almost certainly, uh, or early 19th century, but it's almost certainly an 18th century apple. Probably again came from the mid Atlantic, somewhere around New Jersey or Virginia. And the strain that they use in here, the old Virginia, is way, the, the apples that they grow are way better than the wine saps that we generally grow in the Northeast. So this is a really nice expression of it.
2: Why way better? Because of the climate?
4: Uh, it was, it, it's just, yeah, the climate and the strain of the, of the apple. But it's got a really interesting quality to it that I'm tasting that I normally taste with this. It's kind of a strawberry uh, notes up front. At least I get that out of it. It's very it's a, it's very fruity, but it's it's got berry kind of quality to it, which I really it's like. It's brilliant, and
3: I feel like this is probably the cider that John Adams was drinking could back, be. way back. I, I, I hate to cut the show short, but we could go on for hours because I know... Ben Watson has so much to offer us, and um, I almost mispronounce your name. But um, I really appreciate you coming on the show, man. This is really cool. We have so many more cider shows to do as well as beer shows. In closing, I'd like to thank our sponsors at Union Beer Distributors who've helped to bring this podcast to you tonight. Thanks to Ben Watson for joining me here on the Heritage Beer Network. I'm Jimmy Carbone. Thanks to our producers and especially Kay Howard from United States of Cider who helped put together this show. And to our engineer extraordinaire, Jack Inslee, who's going to clean this live show up. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right.